We're fortunate to have Alex Sarama on today's podcast. Sarama is an England native who has been coaching basketball since he was 14. He's held clinics and helped coaches get better around the world. Earlier this year, Sarama was hired by the popular coaching website, Basketball Immersion, and he continues to help clubs uh, throughout Europe and organizations. Uh, Coach Sarama, thanks for talking some basketball with us today. How's everything in Europe? My pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. It's going well. It's, uh, I'm in Sweden at the moment doing some work with the Federation. So uh, it's been a busy, busy few weeks, but uh, a lot of experiences I've had, which I'm excited to talk about today, actually. All right, great. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because I've been kind of listening to you, watching uh, your stuff for uh, since, since March, basically, since uh, things shut down here in the United States. And and I've come away with a lot of uh, great stuff that I, I'm incorporating into uh, into my practices, and you know I just wanted to share that with uh, coaches here in Idaho because uh, I think uh, there's some some great stuff that you're incorporating into your practices and development stuff like that. And so one of those is you know I want to talk a lot about the idea of drills. And so you know first question, can you explain what a game like drill should look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so technically I'd say even the word drill, it kind of connotes an idea of something which isn't game-like. Um, and I think, you know, the, the history of drill, actually, I think it comes from the military, this idea of drilling something. And, and when it comes to basketball, I don't really like using the word drill because it suggests that we're trying to drill a, a particular pattern or something which has to be repeated over and over and over again. And it suggests, just the name itself suggests something that isn't very, um, isn't something that has much variation. So I, I use the word small-sided game a lot more. And I mean, that's what, that's really what a lot of the stuff is that I'm doing now. And, you know, I, I still use some drills if it, if it has a use. But a small-sided game is essentially anything that's like a 1v1, 2v1. Even, I mean, to be honest, a 5v5 is technically a small-sided game. Um, but essentially, to me, a game like small-sided game uh, has to have a passing option and there has to be a defender. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, you can still do some 1v1s which, have, which are useful, for sure. But for me, especially the focus on the last month has been, can I have a passing option in everything? And to give coaches context, I, I see a lot of 1v1s where players end up taking really bad shots, i.e., a contested mid-range, which isn't a great shot that you want on your shot spectrum. You know, you're not going to win games if if you're consistently taking those. But I think when we do a lot of one v one and we don't present players with that passing opportunity, naturally sometimes that's what happens. Um, so to sum it up, that's a great question. I would say game like has to be a defender and a small sided game with the type of cues and decision cues that players would expect to see in an actual game. So one of the things that, you know, I've come to believe in being a coach for over a decade and, you know, following the game for longer than that is that uh, coaches have a hard time um, <laughs> letting go of control. Um, they don't like the messy aspect. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, coaches appreciate when uh, somebody walks in and sees their practices and it's all orderly and stuff like that. Um this is not really the case as I brought up that term messy. Um, so, you know, is there a line where 
it's too messy? And then, you know, what's appropriate for a coach to kind of clean up those drills? Absolutely. So, I mean, just here, so for context, I've been doing some consulting here in Sweden. So I've been working just over the last month, I've been working with some clubs and with the, the Swedish Basketball Federation. So I've been designing kind of a new, uh, helping them with a new framework for player development. And a lot of the players I've worked with who are used to more traditional environments, i.e. a lot of drills, a lot of on-air practice with no defenders, um, they actually found it really difficult to take in some of my stuff just because they're not used to making decisions and having so many open possibilities within the practice environment. So something I've noticed has been just a lot of wobbling and wobbling is basically making mistakes. And a lot of coaches find it very difficult to embrace the wobbling as a good thing. And what we typically see is a revert, coaches revert to on air very quickly because they can't handle it. And we have to understand that some level of struggle is that's what learning looks like. It's, it's really, really important. And, uh, you know, I, I picture coaches listening to this. Imagine a baby learning to walk. You know, they're going to be falling over and they're not going to have drills teaching them how to walk. And it's exactly the same in basketball. How can we create an environment um, where, where players can self-discover skills, make mistakes and figure it out for themselves? Now, having said that, like I said, some players found it too much some of my stuff. So what I do is I, I deload. So deload basically means I take away some constraints or things within the small side of game to make it a little bit easier. So maybe I could do something like remove one defender. Maybe I could increase the size of the playing space that we're, that we're using. Maybe I could give the offense more options as opposed to limiting something. Um, something I do a lot is this idea of guided defense where I take any action, say it's a pick and roll, a DHO, a screen away, or even something like a closeout. And I do three reps, and then uh, players stay for three reps before they rotate, and the defense does a different coverage every time, and I call it ABC. So let's take, um, let's take even a closeout, something really simple. So option A could be a short closeout. Option B could be they run them off the line, and option C could be more neutral, chest to chest, I'm trying to accomplish that. Uh, and then basically what, what I'm doing with that small side of game is seeing if the offense can make the right decision and come up with a solution that works for the coverage they see. And I'm not saying to the offense, this is what you must do when you see this type of coverage. I, I really, the idea is that I let them figure it out and I let them wobble and see if they can do it for themselves. And then say, for instance, they're really making a lot of mistakes and it's too messy. Or instead of doing three options, maybe I just do two options and maybe if they can't do that, I script it. And it's one coverage, it's one option. They know what it is. However, it's still live. It's not on air. So they're still having to play against the live defender. So I think you can be really creative as a coach in being able to ensure that, that the players can get some success because that's important. Because if they're wobbling a lot, they're not going to feel good about it and they're not going to feel good about their learning. And this, this is a great question. So I'm just going to say last thing on this. I've been doing a lot of work with beginners uh, at some camps here and just kind of working on a constraints-based approach to, uh, to working with beginners on finishing and other things. And even in a one-on-one, there's so much you can do to make, give the offense more success without reverting to on-air practice to a one-on-zero. And I got pretty creative. I just did things like the defender can't jump. The defender can only contest with one hand. 
The defender can only play defense in the smile. Uh, the defender can do anything but block the shot. And there's so much you can do being creative, which still creates game-like practice without needing to revert to traditional drills. I think one of the things that we talked about in our coaches meeting before we started the season is that we also as coaches need to kind of limit the information that we present to the players because, you know, we're coming from a much different knowledge base of what's going on. And you can just see like the kids, when you keep saying this and that and this and that, you know, they are not retaining a whole lot. So is that a pretty important in, in, in something like this, like being pretty focused on, on what you're trying to teach? Yeah. I think the, the retention piece, ultimately that's what's the most important. And coaches have to ask the question, is what we're working on in practice going to transfer to the game? And then coaches actually have to check for that understanding and, and see if things are being retained. And I think just that feedback piece in general, I still believe that giving feedback is a key part of coaching with constraints. I, I don't think you can just let players play. I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan for self-discovery, but still, if a player can't figure out a solution after some time, if I don't step in as the coach and help, well, they might never figure it out. So I think when giving the feedback, it's really important just to, to think Goldilocks, too much, too little. And I, a lot of the stuff I'm doing now is just focusing on one cue at a time. Can they do, can, can, what is the one thing that we want to focus within the small-sided game? Sometimes I will tell them, and sometimes I, I do, I call it a James Bond check. And that is basically when I start I start my players in a small side of game and I give them no instruction, no feedback other than what the task is, i.e. this is the start, this is what you have to do. And I'm looking and I'm checking for understanding and I'm seeing can they remember the things automatically that we worked on last practice or maybe a few practices ago? Can they do it without me telling them? And that's actually what motor, lear motor, motor learning is, retaining a skill without being told to do it and without the coach giving cues and a lot of the practices I mean I do obviously a lot of work with coaches consulting work with coaches all over and I see a lot of time in practice as constant feedback constant instruction and, and the problem with that is it just becomes white noise for the players and and then they're not actually having opportunities to problem solve think for themselves so I uh, wanted to ask you about the mechanics of kind of coming up with these small-sided games. So, um, you know, as a coach is identifying skills their team needs to develop based on what they've seen in either practices or games, let's say something like movement away from the ball. What are methods, uh, what's kind of the structure that a coach should go through to create these game-like situations? Great question. So I think it's really important to kind of think about, have a clear understanding as to what your offensive principles are. And I think that has to be coherent in your small-sided games. Um, so let's, let's take in that example of kind of off-the-ball movement. Something I'm really big on is the moment we have an advantage, um, I call it the rules of dominoes. The rules of dominoes are triggered. And there are three things players have to do. That is A, making first-touch decisions. Point number two, one defender cannot guard two, and point number three into out of space. And that comes from Russia. And the one can't guard two is the most important thing for off-ball players. So typically, let's say an advantage appears, a player's driving the ball, and typically that's going to result in uh, the low man, the help player coming across to stop the help. 
So if we have a situation with a two side, that's two players on the weak side, say, say for instance, in the 45 and corner, they are now left in a situation with one defender, I call it the take two defender, guarding both of them. So we apply the rules of dominoes there and we don't want to allow that defender to guard two. We have to stretch that defender. So then we can do something like a ghost cut, which is where we cut, disappear, and then appear again under the basket. So then it puts that take two defender in an impossible situation. Are they going to guard the cutter or stay with that player on the perimeter? So to me, these ghost cuts are the most important thing off the ball. And I think in Europe, especially in Italy where I coach, we do a, a pretty good job in Italy coaching that. And you see a lot of players off the ball are excellent. They're really looking at their defender and where the ball is and thinking, have I got an advantage if I ghost cut here? So in my small-sided games, you could do something really simple where if a player gets a score for ghost cut, you award double points. And you can do things like that just to encourage that behavior taking place. Now, what you might want to do sometimes is script it. So that would mean maybe we start with an automatic advantage. So let's say, for instance, it's a 3v3. We've got the ball on the right 45, and maybe the defender is trailing the ball. So it's a domino situation, two side on the weak side. The defender is going to have to help, otherwise it's going to be a layup. So that's obviously a constraint that forces that. Now that's going to give them an opportunity to ghost cut. So I might want to script it and do it with a static start so it's perfect and the ball's always starting there. And then I make it more dynamic. So then it's like, as opposed to starting with the situation, can they replicate it in a more chaotic situation? Maybe in transition. Maybe it's a more random start, i.e. the players are in a wheel or in a stack or they're inbounding the ball. And then they have to create an advantage and then see the opportunity to ghost cut. So those are just some things coaches can do to encourage some off-ball movement like that. I think ghost cuts are big. I think just penetration reaction in terms of like push-pull, your drifts, lifts, that's all really important stuff. You can coach them in small-sided games. Um, and just remembering really that one can't guard two rule, that covers a lot of things. So um, through no fault of their own, uh, a lot of kids uh, come through our educational system and it, I don't know, I, I would say a lot of times it discourages creativity and different approaches to things. And so what I notice, especially with the girls that I coach, is that when they get out on the court, um, they think that there's one way to do something. And so, for example, I've been using your blind cuts drill where, you know, the player, uh, the defender is turned around, uh, the offensive player passes and then cuts. Uh, when, when, uh, when they do that, though, they just all of them want to do the exact same thing. So my question here, and you kind of hit on it a little bit, but how do you encourage creative creativity to those young players in, in, in these types of uh, situations? Absolutely. So um, one thing I do, which, which makes it fun, is I have an Oscars trophy, a fake Oscars trophy, bought it off eBay. And sometimes what I do is I say, the player that can show me the most amount of variation and deceptiveness within the small-sided game is going to win the Oscars. So it's basically what player can go off, the script, off script the most and show the most number of different solutions. Um, now let's take, for instance, say we have something like a... Let's say we're working on pick and roll, working on the ball handler setup. And maybe we really want to work on the ball handler being able to reject. Obviously, that's the most, most important thing. That's something that can beat any coverage. Well, maybe I might script it. 
So normally I would start with like a small sided game or, or guided defense. So it's more non-linear. But let's say I really just maybe sit and maybe having problems with the reject and I just want to work on that. So I'll still have a defender. I'll have a screener. And the defender will give them an opportunity to reject through their positioning, but still try and steal the ball. Then I have a live defender in the smile. So even though there's no real decision on the reject, players get used to the technique and they still have to avoid the defender going for the ball and finish against the help. But what I would say is what you typically see is if I just leave it and maybe I even if I say like stay for two reps before you rotate, players will always do the same thing. Like you said, they'll watch each other because that's actually the studies show people obviously learn a lot from watching each other and maybe they want to try new things. So what I do is say, all right, it's two reps or three reps, but the catch is you have to use a different technique to reject it every time. And obviously we, we've used the reject as an example, but that applies to anything. You can just say, stay for two reps, stay for three reps before you rotate, show me something different every time. Um, and I think that's really important. And something else I do is the golden snitch from Harry Potter. And, uh, that basically encourages them to try new things. So just like in Harry Potter, say I'm playing a small-sided game, I say, all right, we'd say we're playing up to a certain score or for a time period. Normally, whoever gets the most points in that time wins. But I would introduce an opportunity to get the golden snitch. So let's take that example of pick and roll. Maybe we're playing 3v3 after score for pick and roll. If a team gets a score for reject, but they reject it three different ways, i.e. maybe one cross, one behind the back, one through the legs, or one off the catch, like a jab and go. The first team that gets three different rejects gets to snitch. Game over, we stop playing. Um, so I can kind of, what I'm working on now is just, I apply the snitch to anything, and it's awesome just seeing the creativity that emerges as a result of that. That's, uh, that's very cool. Um, one of the things on this, I think probably that, this maybe discourages coaches because we can be creatures of habit um, is that idea that this is a lot of thinking that goes into your practices and stuff like that. So, so, you know, I guess the question that I have is should your drills be constantly changing or evolving if that makes sense? Sure. So to be honest, like I have really the small sided games I do, I wouldn't say I have that many, like, okay, I've got a bank of them, but really it's just, I manipulate and I change the constraints that I have within those small sided games. So that could be like, think of constraints as like maybe the different rules that we're playing with. Maybe I constrain the coverages that the defense can use. And it's, it's not really a question of having a bunch of drills, but I think it's more the way you can load it and change the constraints to me, that's the most important thing. Um, and it's, it's really, I, I, I come up with small-sided games just from watching games and seeing what happens in a game. Like today, I was just watching some tape and I saw like a Nash dribble being used, like that dribble under the basket. And then automatically, I think, well, how can I teach that guided defense? So maybe uh, we have the ABCs, which I spoke about. We put a defender on the hip and maybe they give them three different options on the Nash so the offense has to do something different every time. And for me, it's like just watching the game or, and seeing what your players are struggling with within games. That to me is kind of how I come up with my small-sided games. And it may appear creative, some of the stuff I do, but really it 
it becomes, it's not that creative when it's just a case of seeing it on the film and trying to replicate that situation in a random way. No, I think uh, that's a great point, and that's something that I've been really focusing on. Um, we're a couple games in, uh, two weeks of practice, and I spent a lot of time watching film to kind of break down the things that uh, our kids are struggling with. And so, yeah, like you said, there's not a whole lot of different um, setups. It's just, okay, this is, this is the constraint I'm going to put on you because we need to work on this. Yeah. So, so I've got, I appreciate your time. I got just a couple more questions for you. So I want to kind of, want to kind of take it from like that two on two, three on three to kind of your, your offense as a, as a whole. So um, first I'll ask though, is there a practice progression that you found works well when you're, when you're taking your team, uh, I'm sorry, uh, developing your players and then also incorporating team play? Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of this non-linear approach. So I think traditionally what we see in basketball, actually, especially here in Europe, is we see this idea of progressions being a good thing, i.e. start one on zero, go to one on one, then maybe go to some two on zero, two on two, and slowly progress up to five v five. But the reality is that's not really how learning happens. So I like to start my practices where I give the players a problem to solve and maybe it's in a 3v3, a 4v4, a 5v5 and I, let, I just let them go with it. So for instance, I was recently doing some stuff on uh, a dribble handoff with some players here in Sweden and their, their coach wanted them to learn you know, some effective uh, solutions and coverage solutions for using a DHO. So all I did is I started 3v3 and I said, these are the constraints. It's 3v3, but you have to score by using a DHO. If you score, you keep it. Got to clear the ball. Defense, if you get the ball, if it's a stop, you just have to take it out of this area before you can score. So very minimal instruction, and I'm just seeing what they do. And I'm giving them the problem. So as opposed to me starting, like, drilling that, like, on air, or, or even if I did a small-sided game, at least now, They've got an opportunity to self-discover and they understand the context of, of the situation. Then, as opposed to me having like a rigid practice plan, I kind of go off what I see within the first 10 minutes. So say, for instance, within that 3v3, um, they, they had no idea what to do against an under. It would just be neutral every time and then they'd get stuck. They had no solution against the switch. But there are some things they did well. I, they were looking for rejects, and they did some nice splits, especially against switches. So we debrief, we speak about it, and I, I use this idea of a Bansho board from uh, Japan. And it's basically this idea of problem solving in, in mathematics there. So they actually write down all the solutions when they're doing maths, including the things that didn't work. So I kind of do that. I, I did that with the DHO. So it's like things that we struggled with or didn't work, things that worked well. Then I break it down. So from that, I went to a two-on-one immediately working against an under coverage. Then I offered them solutions. So we looked at a shot. We looked at a twist, the rescreen, and we looked at different ways to twist. It could be a front pivot, could be a butt screen, which allows you to separate, get out of the action quicker. Then we looked at just using a, uh, a change of speed because sometimes even against an under, you can beat that defender on the other side. And then the last thing we looked at was cat and mouse. Defender goes under, you catch it, attack opposite. Now, that's a lot. That's four different solutions. Typically, I wouldn't do that in one practice. But 
it was actually because I just started 2v1, I said, figure it out. I didn't give them anything. That's actually all they showed me in, in like six minutes. Then we broke it down more specifically and looked at different solutions. Then from the two-on-one, I went back to 2v2. Then I went back to the 3v3, the same thing we started with. Then from the 3v3, I added in transition. Can they now make a decision to either attack the basket because it's dominoes, we don't need a DHO, or are they neutral? I use that terminology neutral, which means they have to use a DHO to start dominoes. And that's kind of how my practices look now. So I still think there's some use to a practice plan. I really do. But I think just being able to go off script from it and kind of practice what you see based on what the players show you, I think that's really important. So uh, one more question for you. And this kind of, you know, building up from that 3v3 to the 5v5. um, And then also, I guess, the transfer to the game. So um, what are some ways that a coach can um, use these small-sided games but also have a fidelity to what, what we're trying to do during a game 5v5? Yeah. So I think having similar offensive principles in your small-sided games and defensive principles to whatever it is you want in the game. So I think figuring out ways that you can create small-sided games which emphasize the same things within your offense or at least the same concepts that's really, really important. Um, but I think that's kind of where your offensive framework, to me, has to be, if you really want players who are like modern, going to be modern basketball players, could be able to make great decisions, your offense can't handcuff them. And I'm actually working on a big project right now. I'm basically creating like a whole conceptual offense for high school coaches to use because I really feel like a lot of the stuff I've seen, some great stuff, but the problem with like continuity motions and and things like that, always running the same things is it's limiting players because they run the pattern instead of playing the concept. And, you know, the, the working memory is basically there in the brain that stores information. And I see a lot of youth offenses, they fill the working memory with patterns instead of teaching the offense the solutions for what the defense gives them. So I really like having a completely open offense, conceptual offense. I mean, anything can happen where we have a spacing template and we have a few triggers, i.e. actions that we use. That could be ball screen, DHOs, or full screens, whatever. But these are all random. And all we ask the offense to do, instead of focus on running the pattern, run the action, read the defense, punish the defense, start dominoes. And that's, to me what a modern offense looks like looks like which can really help develop youth players i guess uh just thinking about what you're saying though is that as a coach uh we got to understand that this is going to take a little time yeah that's the biggest thing like so i i do these like uh teaching conceptual offense camps where i coaches bring me in and they expect a whole conceptual offense to be done within three days and their team nailing it it could take years and that's the thing with, with conceptual offense and developing players in this type of long-term approach. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. And you've got to be comfortable seeing mistakes and being comfortable with the fact that there are going to be some pretty horrendous games. But when players learn it and they can start grasping it, then you'll really see some nice, some nice results. And not necessarily winning games because of X's and O's, but winning games because your players are so skilled and they can always make the defense wrong. But, you know, it can take 
I think if, if you're practicing like three times a week, it could take like a couple months to really start seeing players develop conceptual reads, especially if they're used to running patterns and kind of motion offenses. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know you had a long day and it's late there in Europe. So uh, I actually will have one more question. Where can coaches follow you and get more of your resources? Because you got some great stuff. Thanks so much. Well, first off, I've really, really enjoyed this podcast. Um, it's, it's always just an honor to be able to share some ideas and, and share the game. Um, so my, my Twitter is Alex J. Sarama and my Instagram is just Alex Sarama. So any questions coaches have, please feel free to get in touch. And then I'd, I'd recommend checking out basketballimmersion.com. And then the final thing is um, I'm actually going to be, I'm hoping to come to the U.S. in a post-COVID world for like a tour. Probably I'm working on putting it together right now for like a month. So if any coaches listening to this like some of the things I've spoken about, I'd love to, uh, you know, look at running camps or whatever and, and seeing how I, can, how I can help. But thanks again for the opportunity. All right, Alex, I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck and stay well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. If you're a basketball coach in Idaho, I'd love to talk to you. If you're interested in participating in a future episode of the podcast, please contact me at IdahoBasketballCoachingPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.